Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. It's a podcast that hopes to provide conversations on hot topics and debates that will be of interest to experts in the field but also to help make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. This is the beginning of the second season of the podcast. The first season, comprised of 14 episodes over about five months, had on average about 600 listeners per episode, or well over 8,000 downloads in total. And it's been listened to in over 90 countries. But I'm hopeful that we can grow the listenership a lot more. These are important issues after all, and it would be great if we could get more people interested in engaging with them. And so if you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, or indeed members of the media and other shapers of the public discourse. And if you have suggestions, feedback, critiques, ideas for issues that we should be focusing on more, do shoot me an email. My email address is on the podcast website. Our guest today for this first episode of the second season is Professor Michael Schmidt, and he will be very well known to many of our listeners. Michael is currently a professor of international law at the University of Reading in England, but was recently retired from and is still a professor emeritus at the Stockton Center of the U.S. Naval War College. He's the Francis Lieber Distinguished Scholar at the United States Military Academy at West Point, and also the Strauss Center Distinguished Scholar and Visiting Professor at the University of Texas. And those are only a few of his many professional and scholarly affiliations. He's published widely in areas of both Jus ad bellum and Jus in bello, but he is perhaps now best known for his work on cyber law as it relates to the laws of war. He was the director of the international group of experts that created the Talon Manuals on International Law Applicable to Cyber Operations. And it is indeed on that topic that we are today speaking with Michael. He has been writing a series of blog posts recently providing analysis of the statements that governments have started to make articulating their understanding of and positions on how the use ad bellum and IHL apply to cyber operations. And Michael has been providing a running commentary on the state practice and opinion juris on these issues. So in this episode, we talk with Michael about his sense of the current state of the law on these issues. But in order to set the stage and bring up to speed those who have not been following the evolution of cyber law, we begin by having Michael explain the development of the different iterations of the Talon Manual and where that process is today. And then, in turning to discuss the increasing number of government statements on each nation's position on legal issues relating to cyber operations, we begin to delve into some of the specific problems and challenges that arise in trying to apply both USAD Bellum and IHL to cyber operations. And what is more, some of the threats posed to the legal regimes themselves and trying to adjust standards and rules so as to make them apply to cyber operations. So the first half of the conversation will help to orient those not expert in cyber ops, but the second half should be of real interest to those who are expert in both cyber ops and in the laws of war more generally. So with that, I bring you Michael Schmidt. Well, Michael Schmidt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Craig. Well, as you know, before I dive into the substance, I've been asking all of our guests to the podcast to share something about themselves that's uh, a little off the wall, something that uh, perhaps your colleagues don't know about you. 
Yeah, well, I'm actually a pretty normal guy. I think the only <laughs> thing my colleagues don't know about me is that I'm obsessed with college wrestling. I am a, a very much a failed college wrestler. And so since that time, I am obsessed with college wrestling. And in every spare minute, I watch college wrestling on TV. Wow. Now you know my secret that nobody else knows. <laughs> so I'm not sure how we're going to blend that into your academic interests, but you know it, it is pugilistic, so I guess it makes sense. <laughs> there we go. So, Michael, we could talk about so many different areas uh, of your scholarship in both use at Bellum, use in Bellow. You've written huge amounts on both. You're an expert in both. But uh, you're increasingly seen as one of the leading experts in the world on cyber law and cyber warfare and how cyber law relates to both use at Bellum and use in Bellow. And you've been writing most recently in a series of blog posts on the positions that countries have begun to take on the application of use at Bellum and use in Bellow to the world of cyber. And so I thought it would really be most helpful to have you on to talk about the current state of state practice and opinion juris on how cyber operations implicate both of these regimes. But as a starting point, uh, for those who aren't really all that well or deeply immersed in cyber, I thought we could start by laying the foundation with a discussion of the Talon Manual, which you have been instrumentally involved in, and the development of international law as it relates to cyber operations. Well, it's, it's actually a relatively new phenomenon, Craig, uh, about 20 years old, the, the, the new phenomenon being the application of international law in the cyber context really began in the very late 1990s and actually at a place that uh, I'm still affiliated with, the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. I was a student at the War College. I was an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. And all of my colleagues, all of my operational colleagues, the flavor of the day was computer network attack. We used to call it computer network attack, computer network ex exploitation. And it occurred to me as an attorney going through the course, as a JAG going through the course, that there were lots of legal issues and no one was talking about them. They were instead talking about what are the possibilities of this new technology in the battle space. So I stayed on uh, after graduation. I stayed on the faculty there and convinced the folks at the International Law Department to run an international conference, the very first one on cyber and international law. So we gathered people together uh, and we looked at these two issues, ad bellum and in bello issues and the application in cyber, their application in cyberspace. Didn't make, produced a book, conference book, but didn't make a great deal of progress because pretty soon thereafter, 9-11 uh, happened and folks like me, we were suddenly focused on counterterrorism, uh, classic military operations, uh, detention, interrogation, and so forth. Right. And, and that was until 2007, when in 2007, we see hostile cyber operations mounted against a tiny Estonia, the significance of which was that Estonia was now a NATO member state. By 2007, it had joined NATO, uh, which raised the question of, did this implicate Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty uh, collective self-defense provision that draws on Article 51 in the UN Charter? So that caught us by surprise. And then the very, because we, we hadn't been thinking about international law and cyber, and then the very next year, we see a, an international armed conflict commence between Georgia and Russia, and their cyber appears again during the operations. 
That's what generated the Tallinn Manual. In response to these events, NATO created a center of excellence in Tallinn, Estonia, and the Tallinn Manual was their very first big project that they took on, an effort to figure out what none of the attorneys knew. How does this body of law apply in the cyber context? Right. And so there was Talon, the Talon Manual and then Talon Manual 2.0. And as I understand from a recent tweet, there's soon to be a Talon Manual 3.0. So maybe you can just sort of right. uh, walk us through sort of the, the evolution of the Talon Manual. And, and I guess explain to us what status this has as a source of international. How should we think about the Talon Manual? All right. Well, when the center decided to launch this project to look at international law, they asked me to direct it because I had done this work a number of years earlier at the Naval War College. So, uh, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I was one of the only guys that had thought about it before we all started thinking about counterterrorism and so forth. So we gathered five people, very, very bright people in Tallinn, Estonia, and we said, what should we do? And, and the answer was, let's address those questions we've just seen raised by these two major incidents. Estonia was very much in a bellum situation. You know, to what extent were the operations attributable to Russia? Because most of the, although they came from 175 plus countries, most of the hostile operations were from Russia. So to what extent are they attributable to Russia? To what extent did we just see a use of force in violation of the UN Charter, to what extent does Estonia have the right to engage in, in the use of force and self-defense? Uh, and to what extent do other countries, uh, are other countries able to come to Estonia's assistance if it has a right of self-defense in collective defense? And then Georgia was very much an, an IHL case. Right. We had you know Georgian forces and Russian forces shooting at each other. Uh, and 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 and, and contemporaneously, we're seeing primarily from Russia, cyber operations directed against Georgia, including Georgian civilian cyber infrastructure, which raised all sorts of questions. You know, to what extent were those operations an attack under IHL? To what extent were the facilities protected by IHL? Not all of the operations were conducted by organs of the Russian state, the military, the, the intelligence agencies. Some were hacktivists uh, attacking uh, Georgia. How did IHL play out in all of this? So in the beginning, we said, let's, let's try to provide something to people like us. Most of us had been legal advisors for states in some capacity. Let's provide some guidance to people that may need to deal with either the ad bellum or in bello question in the future. It took us three years. We produced the first Tallinn manual. We thought it was going to be the last Tallinn manual, <laughs> uh, but the NATO center came back to us. It was fairly well received, but they came back to us and said, we, we enjoyed that. Let's do something else together. And, and my thought after talking to colleagues who had been involved, like Terry Gill, Wolf von Heinig, and a number of other key players, we said, let's keep going. We've done war. Now let's do, if you will, peace or areas of law other than, because some of them are, are applicable in armed conflict, let's do areas of law other than ad bellum in bello. And so we continued with the project along the same model with a different team, 
because we were dealing with different areas of the law. And we dealt with everything from space law to sovereignty to intervention, human rights, uh, diplomatic law, on and on, to produce in 2017, Tallinn Manual 2.0. So that incorporates the first Tallinn Manual. We looked at the first Tallinn Manual text, updated it a bit. Uh, We also took the entire text out to states for the first time and had three meetings in The Hague, sponsored by the Dutch government, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where states were afforded the opportunity to comment on the drafts, the near-complete drafts, both there and subsequently in writing, uh, produced it. And that we really thought that that was the end of the show. (laughs) In fact, I mean, on stage in front of hundreds of people, I have many times said, I'm never doing that again. That was really hard. Uh, I'm not doing that again. However, uh, never say never was the lesson I've learned. We've seen, and and you mentioned this, Craig, we've seen states finally, finally, finally coming out and beginning to set forth their positions on international law. And this, we've been encouraging, the Tallinn folks have been encouraging them to do so because in our view, and this answers your second question, the Tallinn Manual is not law. Right. The Tallinn Manual is nothing more than 20 individuals uh, who have a fair amount of international law experience, both as practitioners and, and scholars, coming together and saying, this is really new. If I was sitting in the Ministry of, of Foreign Affairs or in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office or the Department of Defense or the Department of State, and I was observing an incident as an attorney, what would I say to my client? And so that was simply us trying to explain what our view was as to the interpretation of existing law. So it's nothing more than 20 individuals. It's as good as the the quality of those individuals that participate. It's in no way binding. And on the contrary, in this particular case, because cyber was so very new, we knew we were out on a limb in terms of interpreting this law, because it was so new, there was no state practice, there was no opinion jurist. What we did, unlike other manual projects I had been involved in, like the Harvard Manual on the law applicable to air and missile warfare, or the San Remo Manual on non-international armed conflict, or the ICRC's interpretive guidance, for the first time we said, let's not pretend we have all the answers. And so the most valuable thing in the manual uh, is, is actually the commentary. It's not the rules because the rules required unanimity, but it's in the commentary where we say, we all agree this is a broad general rule, but there are multiple ways this rule can be interpreted. We'll probably talk about that as mm-hmm. we go through. But to take a simple, a simple uh, example, uh, Article 2.4 of the UN Charter and Customary Law prohibit the use of force, including in cyberspace. Well, uh, I think we could all agree on that. I think most states agree on that. But what in the world is a use of force in the cyber context? And there, holy cow, volumes have been written on this. <laughs> yes. So, so the manual, we were acutely aware that we were not a source of law. And what we tried to do was tell them what we thought our interpretation was. And unlike all other manuals, we set forth competing views. So if you read the commentary, it will say, for instance, the majority 
of the experts were of the opinion that X is the proper interpretation. However, a minority said Y. And in some cases, uh, because of this state engagement process, there were states that held views that we thought were not correct, but that we were reasonable. It, they were, you know, it was not a crazy, there were a couple crazy views. <laughs> uh, but but if a state put a view on the table, even if every member of the group of experts disagreed with that view, it made its way into the manual. You can recognize them because the text usually says, we acknowledge the existence of a view. So this gets back to your question, that uh, this long-winded answer to your question. Uh, the reason we're doing Telemanual 3.0 is because we were committed to the notion that states alone make international law and states alone authoritatively interpret international law. And now we are starting to observe state practice, and now we are starting to get opinion juris. So as the director of the project, I'm getting nervous. And I'm <laughs> nervous that there will be legal advisors out there that are looking at the Tallinn Manual as if it is the law when states are taking a different view. So the purpose of Tallinn Manual 3.0, five-year project, starting this year, will be to, as accurately as we can, reflect the views that are starting to finally come out of governments around the world. And because there may be circumstances where we took a position where a government or more said, well, that's just completely wrong. And, and, and we, we feel that they're the ones that get to vote, not us. We, we are recording their votes as best and anticipating how uh, their attorneys may interpret. So we, five, there's an ongoing process in the UN called the Group of Governmental Experts. It's accompanied by another process which has just started uh, for the first time called the Open-Ended Working Group. The specifics aren't important, but they're, for, they're going on right now. They're fora where states are opining on many things, including international law. So now we're seeing state practice in opinion juris, and we want to ensure that, you know, Major McGillicuddy at U.S. Cyber Command has the best and most current international law discussion when he or she is providing advice to their clients, and hence the 3.0. I will tell you, Craig, there will be no 4.0. <laughs> and, and if there is a 4.0, it's not going to have the word Schmidt anywhere on it. <laughs> you heard it here first. So you, you anticipated my next question, which was about the, the so-called GGE and OEWG. And I guess the only question I had was, to what extent uh, are these groups looking at not just international laws that relates to cyber, but very specifically sort of the implications for use at Bellum and use in Bellum? So interestingly, not the answer is not much. There is some discussion of these topics here uh, and on a bilateral or regional or, for example, it, within international organizations like uh, NATO, there is some discussion of them, but the bulk of the discussion currently surrounds principles of international law that apply primarily in peacetime. So there is a, a big debate, kind of a cat fight, uh, over the issue of whether there is a rule of sovereignty in cyberspace. 
there is a lot of discussion over, everyone agrees there's a rule prohibiting intervention into internal or external affairs, but there's a, a big debate over when is something intervention and when is something uh, simply influence, an influence operation. And that's occurring in particular because of election meddling right. and because we have horribly, it's outrageous, have seen states engaged in cyber operations that interfere with pandemic response right. through misinformation and so forth. Uh, and the other big topic is something called due diligence. Some folks, you're talking to one, believe that there is a rule that a state has a legal obligation to put an end to certain cyber operations from their territory that are hurting other states. Uh, and other very reputable international lawyers and, and states believe that that is a, an aspirational norm, not a legally binding norm. So most of the discussion, in these, most of it, is occurring there in these in these broad four. I think the discussions uh, uh, surrounding, in particular, IHL are occurring in fora like NATO or among like-minded states that are engaged in combined operations, uh, operations including more than one country. Right. Uh, we're seeing a lot of discussion, for example, among the Five Eyes, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So that's where most of the play is there. So, and this brings us then to your recent blog post in which you have been providing some analysis of the statements or positions that are starting to come out from countries like, I think France, uh, you've indicated is, is sort of one of the leading countries in this regard, but you've written about Israel, New Zealand, Finland. So maybe we can talk a little bit about your impressions and your analysis of some of these statements and, and what these mean for the development of you know, state practice and opinion of yours on, on cyber. I believe they're hugely important. And the most important being, I think correctly, uh, you've identified for the purpose of ad bellum and in bellum uh, is clearly the French state. It was issued not by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is the norm, but rather by the Ministry of the Armies, which is the Department of Defense equivalent. Uh, and it's very, very granular. And they issued it in both French and English. And it's the, France is the country that has taken the firmest stand on controversial issues. Uh, Israel just really, I, I'm still... Uh, I'm a emeritus at the War College, at the Naval War College. Roy Schoendorf, who's the Deputy Attorney General for Israel, who owns the international law portfolio for the nation, spoke at one of our virtual conferences. And just uh, yesterday, we published the formal speech along with annotated footnotes uh, in International Law Studies, our journal. That's also a very important statement because the Israeli statement, again, like the French statement, takes on a number of issues that are contentious. The, the statements, it's, it's, it's critical to understand that at the time that the Tala Manual 2.0 was completed, almost no state had set forth much of anything uh, in terms of their position. Uh, Harold Coe had given a speech at the U.S. Cybercom that was important. The United States had an important submission to the group of governmental experts that convened between 2014 and 2015. But really, everyone was holding their breath. They, they dare not say anything 
lest what they have to say bind them in the future. Because in cyberspace, whether you're in whether you're on the battlefield or during peacetime, you know, in, in cyberspace, it's so new that it's difficult to anticipate what the consequences are going to be of a statement that you make when we interpret the law thusly, what the consequences are. Just to give you a very simple example, in 2018, the then Attorney General, Jeremy Wright of the United Kingdom, uh, set forth a robust statement on the United Kingdom's views, uh, a very good statement that raised a lot of points, which I, in a sophisticated manner, but one of the things that the Attorney General said is that United Kingdom does not believe there is a rule of sovereignty. Well, that's good if you're conducting operations into other countries, because then those countries cannot accuse you of violating their sovereignty. <laughs> but as we all know, the United Kingdom and, and close allies of the United Kingdom were the victim of hostile cyber operations. And when the United Kingdom condemned them on the basis of international law, I remember I wrote a, a blog post for Egil Talk that said, but you said there's no rule of sovereignty. What rule did those Russians violate? Right. Now, I believe there's a rule of sovereignty and the Russians violated it over and over and over again. But if there's no rule, then, then what, was, how did, what was the foul? What was the foul here? And so states are moving hesitantly because of the principle of sovereign equality. States are both victims and certain states are, both, are also active in cyberspace. So there is this sense on the part of states, that ambiguity is good. Right. It, you know, we can kind of pick and choose on what we want to do and what we want to condemn and so forth. However, I think states are moving beyond that now, and we're seeing just a, a deluge of statements by states on certain aspects. I mean, Finland, New Zealand, uh, Estonia, the president gave a very important speech. France, the United States, we've, we've done a number of, of speeches Beyond that, uh, Brian Egan gave a very important speech at Berkeley. Australia is a leader in this field, produced uh, what they call the Cyber Engagement Strategy, which has a legal annex in 2017. Uh, but in 2019, they produced a supplement to the legal annex and they're working on another. So states are really getting involved. They've said, you know, they've come to the conclusion, we'd rather take the risk of being clear than the risk of ambiguity. And so, so that's sort of where we're at now. And that's how they produce it. I usually do a quick skim of the statement to see if there's anything noteworthy. Now, what's interesting is states are, are not exactly agreeing on everything. Right. You know, it, in a perfect universe, every statement is identical. And so over time, we see an interpretation by a state. States are entitled to auto-interpret international law. In a perfect universe, we see an interpretation of the state firm up and become itself the binding legal interpretation. However, we are seeing some back and forth. Uh, so, I mean, just to give you an example from the uh, USAID in Bello from international humanitarian law, there is the question of what is an attack right. under humanitarian. It's a critical question. Because because the rules of 
IHL for conduct of hostilities apply primarily to attacks. Don't attack civilians, don't attack civilian objects, uh, take precautions in attack, proportionality in attack, 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 attack. So what's an attack right. in cyberspace? You know, well, uh, I believe that, it, and everyone believes that an attack is something that breaks things or hurts people. But when we were doing the Tallinn Man, we, we said well, that, that can't possibly be all she wrote. Because at least in the cyber context, that usually doesn't happen. Right. I mean, it isn't physically broken. We're not talking about, for example, uh, shutting down the cooling system of equipment that actually causes the equipment to break. We're not talking about a Stuxnet operation where you cause centrifuges to spin so rapidly they physically break apart. Most of the time, you're talking about uh, causing a system just not to work anymore. And so we came up with the notion of loss of functionality. Right. Now, because there were 20 attorneys, uh, we probably had 200 different interpretations of what a loss of functionality was. I mean, some people said, well, it's, it means that it doesn't work ever again. Some people said, well, it means that it, it can only work if you replace components. Some people said, well, it, can only, it means it doesn't work unless you replace data. Some people said it doesn't, it means you just can't use it sometimes. You see where we were all over the map. But here, France has taken the same view we did that somehow a loss of functionality will be an attack. Whereas Israel, in their statement, uh, the Israelis say, no, I'm sorry, they, you have to break things or hurt people. You know, we'll stick to the original position. So you, that's an example of where states are divided. And we'll have to see which way that plays out. Again, the, the issue where there's the greatest dissension is on the issue of sovereignty, which is outside the ad bellum context, but it will show you the dynamic we will experience in, in IHL and ad bellum. It's over sovereignty. Right. The, the tall and manual people say there's a, a rule of sovereignty. The Brits come out and in this statement, and People always think I'm criticizing the United Kingdom. I'm not. I agree with almost every other word in this robust statement. But in this one case, the Brits come out and say there's no rule of sovereignty in international law applicable in cyberspace, which I think is wrong, but reasonable. It's a, a reasonable view. Uh, but every other every other state that has spoken publicly on this issue has has taken the opposite view that there is a rule of sovereignty. Interesting. So we will see the same thing happen in IHL and the Usabella. Right. We'll, we'll see, for example, uh, France saying, Tallinn Manual says loss of functionality, whatever that means. France says loss of functionality, which they say stuff doesn't work as intended. I think that's a reasonable view. Israel says, no, you got to have physical damage before the IHL rules apply. Don't attack civilian objects and so forth. We'll have to see what states say on this. And much like the sovereignty experience, which is somewhat further advanced, we'll watch this space in the Tall and Manual 3 group and track what states are saying to see whether there is critical mass or prevailing mass to a particular interpretation. Right. Well, then let's tiptoe into sort of the, the weeds of some of the more contentious issues. And maybe we can start with USAD Bellum. And as you, you pointed out, I mean, right, right at the very outset, you have this question of, does 
the prohibition on the use of force in Article 2.4 of the Charter applied to cyberspace. And you say that most people think it does. The Teller Manual certainly takes the position that it does. But then you have this question of, so what constitutes a use of force? And what constitutes an armed attack? And you know, the Talon Manual has sort of clearly laid this out. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that the Talon Manual is, is nothing more than you know, the, the views of, of a group of 20 people, but it's sort of taken on the flavor of, of like ILC articles and, and people now cite the Talon Manual as though it's gospel. Um, but as you say, the states are now coming out with statements that are not necessarily always consistent with the Talon Manual. So let's just take the use of force and armed attack as a starting point to sort of walk in, into some of the debates over how use ad bellum should apply in cyberspace. The, the big debates, Craig, have to do with threshold, both with respect to the use of force and with respect to armed attack, self-defense. Uh, with respect to the use of force, the big qu question is, is whether or not a cyber operation that is not physically destructive or injurious can ever trip over that use of force threshold. Right. In the beginning, when we first began to look at this, very many states said, no, that's not the case. You, you need to break things and you need to hurt people and it need, they need to be related to the state. You know, we're not talking about a malicious operation, we're talking about an operation designed to impact a particular state and so forth. When we did the manual though, we were unconvinced that was the case for a number of reasons. Remember in the case of Nicaragua, the International Court of Justice indicated that arming and training guerrillas was itself a use of force. And we're not talking about attribution there. We're not talking about control over the guerrillas and therefore their actions are attributable to, in this case, the United States. We're talking about the mere act of arming and training. So what that told us that was that there were some situations outside the context of attribution where an activity may be close enough to our classic understanding of a use of force to constitute a use of force without being injurious, directly injurious or, or destructive. So we adopted an approach that looked at criteria that might help a legal advisor anticipate the reaction of other states to its own cyber operations or anticipate the reaction of other states to a characterization by that legal advisor state that a hostile cyber operation directed against it was in fact a use of force violating that prohibition. And we raised a number of things to look for, the gravity of the consequences, the, the extent to which consequences were direct. In other words, the operation caused the harm rather than they were knock-on reverberating effects. The extent to which the operation was quantifiable, the harm was quantifiable. You know, can we just, can, can we put a dollar figure on the operation? whether or not the operation was conducted by the armed forces or some other entity, for example, an intelligence agency. On and on, there were a, a number of these factors which were misinterpreted as a checklist. In fact, all they were was saying, you know, we're not quite sure where that threshold is, but if you're a legal advisor, you need to deconstruct this incident and think about these sort of things 
as you anticipate the reaction of other states. That kind of took hold. Uh, it was actually a failure of the manual because we weren't able to identify the threshold. It was compensation for our inability to identify the threshold. But that approach kind of took hold, and we see it very much reflected in statements by Australia, France, and other countries. They're actually using many of the same criteria uh, we've used. And they also did, states are increasingly, Australia, Finland, New Zealand, the Netherlands, are also taking an approach that we took in, in this same effort and that's to look at what we called scale and effects, a term that we stole from Nicaragua, where it was used for the purpose of understanding when something's an armed attack. Right. In the context of use of force, we said, well, that kind of works for the use of force, too. Right. If we don't have a bright line test, well, we kind of want to look at scale and effects. So those states and increasingly every state that speaks to the issue has adopted our scale and effects test which we stole from the application to the law of self-defense by the ICJ in Nicaragua. So, so that's the big game. Now, the, the, the big question is always the same. It, from the very beginning, by the way, when we first met in Tallinn, everyone uses the same example, and that's a massive economic attack. Right. Uh, there, we have actually seen some hints by states that they would consider such an operation to be a violation of the prohibition on the use of force. The French have explicitly said so. The French had said, listen, you conduct a cyber operation, even if it's non-destructive, and it affects an entire sector of French activity, then that will be an operation. They cited the economy. Uh, the Netherlands has been a little bit more cautious in their statement, uh, letters sent from Ministry of Foreign Affairs to Parliament on the legal positions of the kingdom, they indicated that might be a possibility. And in fact, it's actually, it's a matter of record now, so I can say it. On the anniversary of Tallinn Manual 2.0, the Dutch government hosted an event in The Hague celebrating the birthday of the Tallinn Manual. And one of their most senior ministers came and specifically said, the kingdom believes an attack on an economy could be a use of force or armed attack. That had not been cleared with other ministries, and they, they quickly did uh, backpedaling on that. But in their most recent official statement, they raised the issue again. Right. So we're, watch, it's, it's a watch this space on the use of force, uh, Craig. So, I mean, this raises a whole host of really tricky questions, right? And not least of which is the question of whether this is sort of eroding or expanding or undermining, depending on how you look at it the limitations of the use ad valum itself, right? So in, in the, the drafting of the charter, there were arguments made that the prohibition on the use of force should include or encompass economic coercion that was explicitly rejected. That it was the idea was the use of force had to be, was, was limited to military force, kinetic attacks. And that has been the case to the present day. And by the way, I mean, think about the way in which the United States, for example, has engaged in unilateral economic sanctions against Iran and Venezuela, in the case of Venezuela, with almost quite explicit intent of causing regime change. And in the Iranian situation, maybe not quite as explicit, but causing widespread devastation to its economy, mm -hmm. right? And yet that is 
clearly understood not to come within the ambit of Article 2.4, surely could not possibly be the justification for any kind of use of force in response. But in the context of cyber, we say, well, but if you bring about those consequences through a cyber operation as opposed to economic sanctions, well, now we're starting to get in, in, into the realm of use of force. And looking at the French position on armed attack, and it, it applies the same scale and effects standard and says that, yeah, there could be a cyber operation that causes sufficient harm to infrastructure, not in the form of damage or injury, therefore nothing equivalent to a kinetic attack, but nonetheless widespread harm in economic terms, that could constitute an armed attack, therefore justifying a use of force in response, a kinetic use of force in response. So is there a risk that the Talon Manual and the development of international laws that relates to cyber is undermining or lowering the standards, the limitations that USAD Bellum imposes on the use of force? Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that's the case. The economic piece that you cite is, is exactly right. In the Talon Manual, we actually go through that history where, where our partners to the South, American partners to the South, were very concerned about the economic throw weight of the United States and pushed for clarification on what is a use of force in terms of economic sanctions and so forth. Does it apply? And it was, as you, as you note, it was answered in the negative. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And so it was pretty clear. I mean, I was in the armed forces. Uh, listen, I know what a use of force is. A bomb blows up, you know, a cruise missile uh, goes through a window, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a huge risk, Craig. And so we were very, very cautious. Now, the, the problem is that maybe the problem is my view of international law. I believe international law is sort of this living organism and it changes over time to retain its valence, to retain its effectiveness, it's going to have to be responsive to the context in which it's applied. Because if it's not responsive, then the norms will fade away into desuetude or, or simply be ignored, which is even a worst case scenario. So it had no one in 1945 was could imagine that from state A, you can cause dramatic consequences in state B without putting a foot in state B, with the sole exception maybe being some kind of economic blockade or something like that. I mean, imagine if there were, well, imagine the case of Estonia. Right. You know, there, they were non-destructive attacks. They could easily have tripped over in, into uh, much more egregious shutting down hospitals and stuff like that. I, I think you, you have to allow the norm to evolve a little bit. But when you're doing so, you need to be extraordinarily cautious about the point you make, because there is a risk we will throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of the norm here altogether. If you start very liberally interpreting the, the use of force standard, and more importantly, the armed attack standard, because that's the point at which you can resort to kinetic responses or highly destructive cyber responses, that's really problematic because that, that spreads way beyond the field of cyber. It creates this snowball effect. So we, we were pretty cautious. We said we didn't know the answer. And that's, I, I have to tell you, that's why I'm kind of concerned that states looked at our discussion 
has checking off blocks. Right. Yeah, this creates effects that are pretty direct. Yeah, this creates quantifiable effects. Yeah, the military did it. There were others. Right. Look at the nature of the target. Yeah, that's critical infrastructure. I'm very nervous that they treat that as a uh, just checking off a, a checklist. That's why we wrote it so that they would think about these issues as they made up their own decision. But they need to understand the consequence of their decision is that they are moving moving the ball right. uh, with respect to the use of force threshold. And it is a ball that will move not only in the cyber context, but with respect to the rule generally. Right. And so I, I believe that states have not done very much work on the use of force threshold. They have not done very much work on the armed attack threshold. And this is where they should be focusing their efforts for the reason you say because this is a very dangerous trend. You know, the French view is, is really very, very liberal view of what is an armed attack. I mean, you can read the statement and it, right. it, it's a view that says, listen, if you cause a lot of disruption in my country, that's an armed attack. Right. Well, I mean, an economic sanction to a Latin American country can cause devastating consequences and we decided that was not a use of force or an armed attack. Uh, by the French view, that would clearly qualify, right. clearly. What's, what is the difference between economic sanctions and cyber operations that have that impact? I mean, there are differences. One is I decide not to trade with you. The other is I take affirmative actions to disrupt, but is, is that gonna be the, is it the mechanism to cause the effect that's going to be the difference? In a use of force call, uh, I have to, I struggle with that. Yeah, no, I think I struggle with it as well. And I think you know there is this qualitative difference between as the, the type of example that you you cite often, where countries sort of say, well, where there's an equivalence to kinetic. So you know, a cyber operation that strikes at the cooling system of a nuclear power plant, which the knock-on effect of which is actual harm and injury, is it an easier case to say, well, yeah, that's kind of equivalent to a kinetic attack. But I think there's a crazy Tom Clancy novel, which involved both planes crashing into Congress, as well as, at the very outset of the novel, an attack on the New York Stock Exchange, a cyber attack. Now, you know, the cyber attack knocked out the New York Stock Exchange, causing billions of dollars of uh, and mayhem in, in the financial markets of not only the United States, but the world. Is that an attack? Right. right. I mean, there is absolutely no equivalence to a kinetic attack. There's no physical damage. There's no injury. There's financial mayhem and massive economic dislocation. But does that justify the use of armed force against the country to which it's attributed? And, you know, we haven't even gotten into the attribution problems, right? Right. I mean, you know, and it's, it's the, we always use the stock market as the example, but there are many, many more examples. Imagine a cyber operation that grounds aircraft across the United States. It's an operation where you no longer feel that the air traffic control systems are reliable, and so you feel it's too risky to fly. Imagine the impact on the United States of, as we experienced on 9-11, of we ground all aircraft. Right. I mean, we can go on and on and on. And the problem is, you know, there is some problem with the kinetic approach with the we break things, we hurt people approach. Are you telling me, and this is what people, uh, this is a sorting debate. Are you telling me that if bad guys sink a couple of merchant vessels of the United States, 
that's a use of force, which we would all agree is a use of force, okay? That that's a use of force, tripping over that, that rule of law, but a massive attack on the entire economy of the United States is not. I mean, you know, with respect to the American people, which of those two events would they clamor for a forceful, even kinetic response? Clearly the latter. Right. Clearly the latter. So the the reason that the old rule made sense pre-cyber is because most of the things that we were worried about, most of the things that we would that were severe, most of the things that the population would go, hey, we're not going to tolerate that and we're going to respond with the use of force, actually did break things. Right. But with the exception of economic sanctions, but now we have a mechanism that can cause far greater harm to a nation, but it doesn't break things. It's, it's a tough question. And I think, and, and your point is, is I agree 112% with you, Greg, we, we need to start thinking about this more forcefully, you know, and we need to start thinking about this with other countries. Maybe we know what we would do, right. but we need to come up with rules of the game, uh, at least with like-minded states, I would think. And I think that the last point on this uh, that I would suggest is that we need to think also of, of the sort of the knock-on implications, right? So I've cited in some recent work I've been doing on climate change, the Talon Manual and the development in the world of cyberspace as a basis for saying, well, why would it be that you couldn't use force against a country that is burning down its rainforest and putting the, the globe at jeopardy in terms of contributions to climate change? That seems to be something that you couldn't possibly respond to with force. And yet, if you start to look at how the Talon Manual is approaching, you know, scale and effects of potential harm to other countries, it starts to look like, well, maybe you could apply that same sort of scale and effect standard and the checklist of, uh, of criteria for saying that an egregious and reckless contribution to climate change might also be a triggering effect, allowing for a kinetic response, which seems crazy. And yet it starts to look more plausible in the context of the standard that's laid out in the talent manual. It doesn't, it doesn't seem crazy. Uh, I've thought about the climate change case myself. Uh, you're exactly right. It does seem crazy, but then it doesn't seem crazy when you think of what's the object and purpose of the rule. The object and purpose of the rule is to prevent certain consequences that are likely to be destabilizing. And if, if you focus, if you zero in on that object and purpose, what you really want to do is not stop things that break things, stop uh, operations that break things. You want to stop bad operations that are going to cause uh, global instability. Remember, remember what when the the charter was written in 1945. It's it has the World War II is ending. You know they were trying to stop that kind of stuff. It was right. all about global instability. So if you focus in and say that's a rule that is designed to to preclude certain consequences or give states a response option in the face of certain consequences, then it kind of does make sense. So I'm perfectly comfortable with it in that regard, but how do you measure that consequence? Right. There's my problem. I really don't care if you're doing super, super, super bad things to me in cyberspace by virtue of the environment or with, or with your cosmic all-weather fighter bomber. I don't really care. I worry about the severity of the consequences, but how in the world do you craft a rule that can that can give you the results you want 
based purely on consequences. I mean, who's to say what's bad? Right. Uh, by the way, climate change is particularly bad for some states. More, it's worse for some states than other states. Uh, cyber operations, worse for some states than other states. So I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. This is this really, we, we need to rethink this in a way that there are not unintended effects as we try to respond to the reality of, of cyber threats. There also seems to be a strange, sort of an instinctive reaction to temporal aspects of this, in the sense that economic sanctions, which tend to strangle the country slowly, are permissible, certainly not the basis for any violent reaction, but a instantaneous asphyxiation through cyber operations that for some reason you know gets our attention you know so killing me slowly doesn't trigger a right of self defense but a violent or even a nonviolent but quick attack on my you know my my life systems for some reason triggers the the right of self defense and it's, i think it's the same with the climate change climate change it's it's happening slowly so that doesn't trigger anything but something that is more a more uh, instantaneous threat to the to the country somehow triggers the right of a violent reaction. No, this was one of our factors. This was the factor of immediacy. We felt that states are, for better or worse, right or wrong, we're not making that decision, but for better or worse, right or wrong, the more immediate the consequences, the more likely states are to say, goodness gracious, that's a use of force or an armed attack. Now, there is some logic there because the longer it takes for consequences to manifest, the greater the period during which you can resort to other means to to try to stop them. But nevertheless, your point is, is correct. There is a difference between a cyber operation that causes the stock market. That the ones they're always thinking about is the stock market collapses overnight. I wake up and I'm poor, right. or I think I'm poor, Right. okay? But you could do the same thing by cyber means, by simply undercutting, by, by cyber means, undercutting confidence in certain key sectors of the economy or certain key companies that causes investor confidence in them to begin to erode, to slip. And, you know, you slowly bleed out. The economy slowly bleeds out. And so you're exactly right. At the end of the day, the consequence is identical. But there's something about the slowly bleeding out using cyber to cause the economy to slowly collapse is not nearly, it's not seen as bad when I talk to government officials around the world as, oh my God, nightmare scenario, look what, look what they've done. Right. So yeah, you're right. Again, it, it's tough. Well, listen, we could spend another hour talking about attribution within the context of use at Bellum, but the, the use in Bellow and IHL fans will not forgive me if we don't <laughs> okay. say a few things. Now, you, you've already prefaced this by talking about the centrality of the, the idea of strike. And you have an article, which I actually assigned to my, my class last semester, that very methodically and rigorously sort of unpacks why it is that strike, as it's used in the provisions of the additional protocol, does not necessarily is not necessarily limited to violent uh, activity, but perhaps we can just talk a little bit about that and why, in a bit more detail, you've already sort of canvassed it a little bit, but why it is that this notion of strike is so important to the principles of distinction and so forth in the application of IHL. This is an area where where my thinking and the thinking of the group has evolved over time. In the beginning, I wrote an article 
called Wired Warfare. It was in the Review of the Red Cross, and it was really a response to my very dear friend, Newt Dorman, who was uh, then the legal advisor at the Red Cross. And what I said there is an attack in IHL, like it or not, an attack means you break things or hurt people. And what that means is if you conduct cyber operations that do not have those consequences, then those operations do not violate international humanitarian law, no matter what the consequences, so long as the consequences are not illness, injury, and and so forth, physical destruction. During the course of the Tolomanual group, I was, we always had, uh, for the IHL part, we always had an ICRC rep, and we had some spectacular ones. Uh, Robin Geis, uh, Niels Meltzer, Cordial Droga, who currently leads the ICRCs, they they convinced me that it had to be more than that. Because if you look at the object and purpose of IHL, I, I don't believe it is to protect civilians. Or, I believe it's to find an appropriate balance between operationally sensible and necessary operations and the protection of the civilian population and other protected persons and objects. And they convinced me that this notion of loss of functionality that we needed to embrace that. And in fact, we've talked about loss of functionality. And in fact, this is where loss of functionality first reared its head. Discussions within the group on, come on, man, because now with cyber, we can so disrupt the enemy's civilian population that in a way that it was unimaginable in the past, surely IHL should preclude that. Hence, uh, the functionality test. And I wrote it, my second article, which was rewired warfare, <laughs> meaning those ICRC people have convinced me and we need to, to not be so rigid in our views. And then I have currently written another article called uh, Wired Warfare 3.0, where I say, you know, the problem of attack, which is so critical because it tells us when we apply these rules, remains a tough one. How do we really uh, balance military necessity and humanitarian considerations? Because even if we accept loss of functionality, permanent loss of functionality, loss of functionality requiring repairs, you can still dramatically disrupt an enemy civilian population just because you're a mean guy. You're a bad guy. And, And I don't think we want to allow that to happen. Remember, I'm a War College graduate as a... I don't remember anyone saying that that's useful militarily, but we know that there are bad guy states out. So in rewired warfare, I say, I think we need to move beyond the legal arguments and we need to move into the policy arena. And we need to have states adopt policies that protect the civilian populations when there's no articulable military purpose uh, to the operation. So I've suggested a number of things like... uh, uh, like declaring certain essential civilian functions off limits. You know, why in the world would you ever want to interfere with the delivery of social services to the civilian population? You know, yeah, that'll cause a lot of harm and suffering. It might not kill anyone. It might not break anything. But militarily, why, should, why would you want to do that? So let's give that up in advance. If we can get other states to give that up in advance, eventually, maybe over time, it'll mature into a, a binding norm. The other big issue in IHL, huge issue, has to do with the characterization of data. Because remember what we're doing here, we're saying IHL 
it protects against lots of operations. For example, any military, any operation involving medical facilities will usually be unlawful depending on whether it's destructive or not, because their medical facilities are specially protected. But generally, those attack rules apply uh, only to operations, cyber operations, qualifying as an attack under IHL, which was defined, by the way, in the additional protocol as an act of violence against the enemy, whether in offense or defense, but that did not capture the cyber uh, context. The other problem is a specific rule. Let us assume that the operation qualifies. It is destructive. Okay, the cyber operation is destructive, but what it's destroying is data. Right now, why in the world is that important? It's important because the rule reads you may not attack civilian objects. So this raises the question of whether or not data is an object or not. Uh, if data is an object, then any operation destroying or altering data, which would include many cyber operations, if not most, would then be uh, violation of IHL and also, by the way, a war crime. So, wow, that's kind of overbroad. I mean, <laughs> if you talk to U.S. Cyber Command or GCHQ or the Australian Signals Directorate and you tell them anytime you're altering data, you're committing a war crime, I'm pretty sure that they're going to invite you to leave the room right away. <laughs> On the other hand, if data is not an object, Oh, my God. Again, the humanitarian consequences of that particular view are really unacceptable. Are we really saying that during an armed conflict, one belligerent should be able to destroy data with impunity in another country so long uh, in the enemy's country, so long as there are no physical consequences? I mean, come on. Uh, are, are we saying it's okay, for example, to destroy all the data associated with the delivery of, again, social services? Do we really mean that? Do we really mean you can conduct during a, an armed conflict, an operation that will wipe all the databases at the, in the educational system? That, that doesn't make sense. That's inconsistent with the object and purpose of finding an appropriate balance. So there, you know, we, we like attack. We're seeing people take sides. Uh, France, loss of functionality, that's an attack. Israel, loss of functionality, that's not an attack. France, data is an object. Anytime you're destroying data, altering data, that is, and it's civilian, you've just attacked civilian object. Israel, Denmark, no, that's not the case. Data is not an object. The only time an, an operation against data matters is if it has knock-on consequences that would otherwise qualify it as a violation of IHL, destruction of civilian objects. So there's another one that can't be solved. And in 3.0, I say, listen, dude, we've had this argument over and over, and it troubles me that Israel and Denmark and France and other states are taking views because no matter which view is accepted, it's either going to be unacceptable from a humanitarian perspective or unacceptable from a military perspective. So there again, I've made some suggestions that we ought to move beyond that, that debate, which is interesting to academics, but has someone who works in a military environment. What I really want to know is, do I need to go after that data to, to achieve my military objective? 
And if I do not need to go after that data and it's civilian, I just need to leave it alone. I just need to leave it alone. Great militaries, professional militaries do not disrupt intentionally civilian life. They defeat their enemy uh, and they try to alter the, the, uh, the decision-making of the enemy leadership, but they simply don't conduct operations that have no purpose other than to disrupt uh, civilian life. So, so that's my suggestion. I, again, states need to talk about this. And, and, and here's one where we need to take the lawyers and fling them out the window. And the reason <laughs> is, is because I, I, it, many of them are my very close friends. They have these vicious to the death arguments over whether data is or is not an object, whether something is or is not an attack. And, and the correct response is, this is an area where we may need new law. Right. This is an area where simple interpretation of the law yields unsatisfactory results, no matter which side you take of the debate you take. Right. That's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm a big believer. There's, listen, uh, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting someone arguing that you need new treaties, new law for cyberspace. I am not in that camp at all. I'm, I'm opposed to it. I believe that international law, in particular, international humanitarian law, at Bellum, we have some problems, but in particular, international humanitarian law, the rules we have, if we interpret them reasonably in the context in which they apply, are just fine. But here are two instances where, where I think that you can't do that without distorting the rule beyond all recognition, which I, as an attorney, I do find inappropriate. So I guess, I mean, that brings us to the, maybe the, the last point before we have to close this out is, is there an appetite in your view for trying to come up with some new treaties, uh, a new convention to, to govern some aspects of cyber warfare? Yeah. So it ain't going to happen. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's simply that's not a clear going, answer. It's not going to happen. There are very few treaties on cyberspace. There's, of course, the uh, Budapest Convention 2002 dealing with cybercrime, but lots of key states like Russia and China are not a party to it. Now, Russia and China have put on the table, they want a new treaty to govern cybercrime. It's like, wait a minute, we already have one of those, <laughs> except that you're the ones that aren't party to that treaty. And the Americans and Australians and others have wisely said, aren't we getting ahead of ourselves? I mean, shouldn't we figure out what the law is before we try to fill, determine what voids we're trying to fill? And when we're talking about in bellow operations, I mean, you know as well as I do, it's very, very hard to secure consensus among the key war fighting states. Listen, if you're a state that doesn't go to war, if you're Switzerland, no offense to my Swiss uh, uh, friends, and I have many, it, you can sign on to treaties because <laughs> you're not going to go to war probably. But if you're the United States or the United Kingdom or the Netherlands or Denmark or Russia or China or Iran or Israel, and you go cautiously into the night when it comes to these treaties I don't think we're going to have any treaties. We won't be able to secure the consensus that's necessary to have a meaningful treaty. Can we have a treaty? Yeah, of course we can. But a treaty which actually impacts operations on the ground, highly unlikely. For me, all of the action comes in interpretation of existing norms or accepting the fact that we can't solve this problem, but trying to come up with policy responses 
that foster our, our objectives of finding this balance between military necessity and humanitarian considerations. So we're not going to have any treaties. If, you know, for, you forget it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but I think we can work together, uh, particularly in alliances like, like NATO. Uh, we can work together to come up with shared interpretations of the law that will that it will advance and maybe over time eventually crystallize into uh, binding rules or binding interpretations. And I believe that we can come to agreements even with our adversaries on certain aspects, certain policy approaches. I'm not one of those people that, you know, believe all the Iranians are bad and all the Russians are bad and I think that's counterfactual. I think that the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and uh, and everyone else wants to find this appropriate balance between military necessity and humanitarian considerations. And we just need to, to sit down and, and, and talk through it without the politics. You know, uh, we're starting to see that since a date in January. We're starting to see that come back into favor <laughs> in our country. And I applaud that. I applaud talking with folks who might be your adversary to try to come up with mutually beneficial interpretations and policies. Well, that's a, a optimistic note on which to end. So um, we could spend another several hours talking about a, a lot of the details of the Talon Manual and the, the recent national statements. So, uh, I won't take any more of your time, but thank you so much for this. But before I let you go, of course, I'm going to ask you to recommend three readings that you think uh, our listeners will be interested in, not necessarily uh, all related to cyber, but something that you think perhaps hasn't had the attention it should. Yeah. So I think this is a real a question designed to set me up, Craig. So I'm <laughs> going to do... I'm going to do, I know everyone that's working in the field, uh, if you get old enough, you get to that point. I know everyone working in the field, and I'm. if I highlight one piece, it's going to insult the person who I have failed to highlight. <laughs> so I'm not going to bite. And I'm not going to bite actually for a substantive reason, because I'm one of those people that say we should, in the first instance, we should always look to the work of states in interpreting law. So I would strongly recommend that anyone interested in this field take a look at the key positions, certainly the Israeli position, which was published in International Law Studies yesterday, the French position, I've blogged on that in EGIL and EGIL Talk and Just Security, uh, the Dutch position, which can be found online, they published it. It is a letter from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to Parliament. The Australian Cyber Engagement Strategies strategy with its two legal annexes, and then very, very recently, New Zealand and Finland have both put out statements that are important and granular and sophisticated. And I've blogged on both of those in Just Security. So I say, look, look at what states are saying. That's the place to start. And then you can go listen to what my colleagues, all who have only written good things, uh, <laughs> have had to say about this issue. Okay, that's a clever dodge, but I will post the links to those state positions on our readings list. And, and as you say, I mean, they're important sources for us to read. So uh, thank you for that. And listen, Michael, thank you so much for taking time with us today. This was hugely enlightening. I think that both those who are not sort of in the weeds of cyberspace will find this hugely illuminating. And for those who are in the weeds, will find it really, really interesting. So thanks so much. And thanks for being such a good host. Thanks, Craig. 
And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. Be sure to tune in to our next episode when I speak with Professor Terry Gill of the University of Amsterdam about the use of force against non-state armed groups in non-consenting states. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, critiques, or suggestions for future episodes, please do send me an email. My contact info is also on the website. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And note that there is a page with all the reading recommendations to date, which is growing into an impressive and wide-ranging list of material from classics to the eclectic. And if you're enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts and podcasts. And do tell your friends, colleagues, or students all about it. And you can, of course, follow us on Twitter at, at JibJabPodcast for updates on the upcoming episodes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, stay safe.